Contagious, and I, and I hope you've enjoyed this, uh, this series, Contagious, because we've all kind of learned firsthand, probably maybe even been reminded what we're dealing with, with all the, the COVID stuff going on, which by the way, you know, we're kind of in a, a spike season right now. We've, we've kind of beginning to learn and, and remembering and being reminded just how contagious every one of us actually are, that what we touch matters. Now, we, we don't think about that when people are fine, but you see some snotty-nosed person touch something, you don't want to touch it. What we touch matters, that our, our presence matters. It's one of the reasons why if you're not feeling well, you should stay back from people. So whether good or bad as human beings, we are incredibly contagious with both positive and negative things that we say and we do. You're influencing things all the time. You're changing things all the time. And I think we get that, but really the question that I want to kind of unpack today for us to kind of be thinking about is, are we willing to evaluate ourselves? Now, just so you know, we're quick to evaluate others, right? Maybe it was just the first service, but we're quick to evaluate others, but are we willing to evaluate ourselves? Are we willing to make adjustments to ourselves when we are not representing Christ accurately? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to put the love and hope that we've discovered in Christ Jesus ahead of our personal feelings or catch this, our political ideas? Are we willing? That's the question that I I want us to kind of unpack today. And I don't know if you're familiar with this term, the fundamental attribution error. Uh, anybody familiar with that? You, you've heard about that before? Okay, good. Well, I, I just learned about it this week, and I think it's kind of something interesting. And I like to learn new things, and because then it makes me feel like I'm smart. Y- y'all know what I'm talking about? But the fundamental attribution error is a cognitive bias that we're being sucked into, especially in a political season like we're going through right now. And what it does is it causes us to attribute people's behavior to their character. So we th- say things like this. The reason why he acts that way is because that's actually how he is. Or the the reason why she does those things is because that's an indication of actually who she is on the inside. But just so you know, we don't do that for ourselves. When it comes to our behavior, we attribute our behavior and our actions to our circumstances or to environmental factors. Let me just give you an example. If someone shows up late for work, we reason, the reason why he is late is because he's lazy. You know, he's just a lazy person and he's irresponsible and he's incredibly disorganized. But if we're late, that's not what we do. We don't say to ourselves, well, the problem is I'm just lazy and I'm irresponsible and disorganized, do we? For ourselves, we decide the reason that I'm late is because I was helping the kids get ready. You know, or the reason why I'm late is because I was on the phone with a friend who really just needed my help and I just had to spend some time talking with him. I, I'm very responsible and organized. In fact, I'm so responsible and organized, it's how I am actually late, yeah. right? The fundamental attribution error happens when we assume, and we all know how dangerous that is, that a person's action reflect what kind of person they really are rather than understanding that sometimes it's circumstances and environmental factors. So when it comes to the political scene, this is kind of what it sounds like. Those corrupt Democrats, do you know why they're that way? Because they're just corrupt. 
They're, they're just, it's in their character. They're just corrupt. Or those heartless Republicans. Do you know why they believe that way? Do you know why they vote that way? It's because they're heartless. They don't, really don't even care about the poor. And the banter goes back and forth. They're corrupt. They're heartless. They're corrupt. They're heartless. But listen, when people talk like that, they've been sucked into this cognitive bias. And they start saying things like, listen, clearly something is wrong with them because deep on the inside, all of us know that all Democrats are socialists. Well, all of us know that all Republicans are racist. Now, now they would never admit that, but man, we know because we can actually see their heart. Now, I don't want to burst your bubble and I want to step on your toes if I need to, but I hope you'll listen to what I'm saying and consider what I'm saying today because mature Emotionally intelligent, curious, and empathetic people don't fall for that kind of thinking. But political rhetoric feeds this. And political rhetoric will take you by the nose and it will lead you to say and believe all kinds of crazy things, many things that are actually not true. Because just because you read it on Facebook doesn't mean it's true. And listen, you're better than that. Listen, I'm better than that. So as followers of Jesus Christ, let's not do that anymore. Listen, in fact, you can call people out on that. When you see them saying, doing that kind of thing, you can say, hey, listen, you're suffering from a cognitive bias. They'll kind of look at you like, what? And you say, yeah, that you're making a fundamental attribution error. I, on the other hand, am mature. I'm emotionally intelligent, and I don't suffer from that anymore. I used to, but I sat and I heard this amazing message preached by this amazing looking guy, and now I really understand what's going on. Just try it sometime. You see, the thing that really, thank you. Was that you, Pam? Okay. (laughs) Thank you, Jay. The thing that really defines you and I as followers of Jesus Christ is what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35. He said, by this, Everyone will know that you're a disciple if you vote Democrat. (laughs) If you vote Republican. No, it's if you love one another. It's the foundation. If we love unconditional, agape love of one another. And when we understand this, what it begins to help us recognize is that everything else in the New Testament is actually just teaching you and I how to love one another. In fact, here's how Jesus said, or Paul wrote it in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. He said this, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is shorthand for the verse that we just looked at. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And it helps us understand how to practically express The New Testament is helping us do this, how to practically express, how to walk out, how to say things that really reflect the agape, unconditional love of God to other people. Because when we choose, and just so you know, you're going to have to choose. You're going to have to make the choice to carry someone else's burden. Do you know what we do? We listen. Now, I know that might sound a little self-evident, but I believe the problem we're having in America today is no one is listening. A lot of people are talking, but no one is listening. We listen with empathy. 
Meaning we're actually trying to understand a point of view that's so different than ours. Because when we do that, you know what happens? We learn. We learn. We, we begin to enlarge our ability to understand some things. Because again, we think that's about their character. But in reality, everybody does things because they believe it's the right thing to do. And everybody says certain things because they believe it's the right thing. We listen, we learn, and listen, what happens is we learn how to lean in into relationships. We learn how to really connect. When we choose to carry someone else's burden, what divides us diminishes us, and what unites us begins to come to the surface. Because I'll say this about things that you disagree with other people about or even in our nation. There are a lot more things that we actually agree on than we disagree on. And it begins to really unite us. We become less angry. We become less fearful. And we begin to understand others more. This is how the church began. And this is how the world changed. See, the issue that each of one of us has to wrestle is not which party to be a part of. The, re- the thing that you and I have to wrestle to the ground is are we going to put our faith filter in front of our political filter? Are we going to, to be the children of God that God's called us to be? And just so you know, this is incredibly important. The early church, they, they, they did this, and it was difficult for them to do. And in fact, it was incredibly difficult for all of us to do. Because, listen, it's so difficult to do that most of us think we've already done it. Right. We already thought, well, my party is the part, party that Jesus is a part of. He's a part of all of us. And if you're a Jesus follower, you have to put your faith filter in front of your political filter. You have to be a Christ follower first and then a Republican, Democrat, a Libertarian, a Independent Party, Green Party. And I don't know if there's any more, but you have to put that after that. And, and what I hope you'll see today in just the short time that you and I have together is that when we do that as followers of Jesus Christ, things change in our culture. Things change in our society. And we do the world a horrible disservice when we are more passionate about our political ideology than we are about the cause of Christ. Now, Pastor Richie, we don't really do that. Oh, really? Over the past week, month, year, what have you spent more time talking about? The elections? The other candidate? government overreach, government underreach, or have you spent more time talking about how can we help society understand the love and hope of Jesus Christ better? Which have you done? Listen, I'm I'm not trying to make you feel bad about having a political ideology. You should. You, You should know what you think. You should know what you believe. You should be involved. And listen, if you haven't already voted, you need to get out Tuesday and vote. But Jesus didn't come to this earth to attach his teachings to a political party or a political ideology. Jesus didn't come to support an existing structure. Jesus came to replace everything that was in place. Jesus is the king who came to replace the order of everything. And when we try to fit Jesus inside of our political platform, you and I, we rob the world of the message that actually changed the world. See, we cannot be first and foremost party people. And I'm not talking about your freshman year at college, all right? We cannot be first and foremost party people. We have to be kingdom people who are willing to influence politics. 
who are willing to influence society as a whole. Listen, when we're choosing between the lesser of two evils, we still need to call out the evil. We still need to do wrong, recognize wrong behavior even from our, our political cab, candidate. And this is a big deal. Early Christians laid down their lives and they reshaped the world through this kind of behavior. And they moved the ethical and moral needles of the Roman Empire. Do you know how they did that? Through this thing right up here on the board. Throw that up, guys, if you would. They did it through culturally disruptive unity. Keep it up there for just a second. Culturally disruptive unity. See, in the world of the Roman Empire, where people were divided by economic standards, by race, and by gender, the church stood in stark contrast to that. And it was dangerous to the empire. That's why the empire decided to strike back. The Star Wars people just went right over here. Don Star Wars. Listen, this was a threat to the empire. And here's why. And it's almost impossible for us really to fully recognize, fully wrap our minds around and understand this. But classes of people whose circles very seldom overlapped came together to worship voluntarily and regularly to worship the crucified Christ. This was not only baffling to the people of the empire, it was something that was economically and politically disruptive to the system that was actually in place. So how were people who didn't look like each other, think like each other, raise like each other, act like each other, how were they able to actually come together? Because the message of Jesus Christ was so clear. Jesus said, I've come to establish a new kind of kingdom. And everyone red and yellow, black and white, Republican, Democrats, they're invited to participate in it. You know, there's many passages in the Bible that we read that we kind of have a tendency just to kind of flip by it and and we're like, duh, of course, you know, that just doesn't, of course, isn't that obvious? But in in Galatians chapter three, verse 28, Paul writes something and we read it again and we're just kind of like, what? But these words for first century Christians were paradigm shifting In fact, it changed the fabric of an empire. Here's what he said in Galatians chapter three, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Now, when Jewish people would see this back then, they would say, wait, wait, wait. That's not how it works. He's our God. We've got Yahweh. Yes, we do. We've got Yahweh. How about you? Right? They They would say things like that. And Paul says, no, no, no. Listen, there's a new king. There is a new kingdom. And what used to be this source of tension between God's chosen people and those that weren't, it's, it's, been, it's disappeared because all find salvation the same way at the foot of the cross. We are one with Christ, united, not divided anymore. So he goes on, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, Republican or Democrat. Okay, I added that part in there. For watch this, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And again, we kind of read over this like it isn't a big deal, but I'm telling you, it was. This was disruptive to the economy. This was disruptive to the class system that was in place. This was disruptive to the empire. And the kingdom that Jesus came to establish It put both slave and free, male and female, on equal footing in this new kingdom. And and again, we kind of struggled to wrap our minds around this because slavery in the ancient world was different than slavery that happened in the United States of America. Slavery that happened in the United States of America was based on color and racism. 
But in the ancient world, everyone was the potential slave of someone. If you missed your house payment, they came for your house and your son. If, they, if you missed your horse payment, they came for your horse and your daughter. And in a culture where almost everyone is someone's potential slave, the dignity of women dropped to a level that it is hard for us to imagine. We can't even comprehend. And Paul comes along and says, in this new kingdom, in this new value system, men and women have the same standing with God. And then Peter comes along and he says, men, you need to be careful how you treat your wives. Okay, a couple ladies are going to amen me. The rest of you are a little chicken. They, men, you need to be careful how you treat your wives. Listen, they are a joint heir with you. And, and, and Peter would say to us as men, listen, men, you need to be careful. You realize you're married to a daughter of the king. So that's why Paul ends this verse by saying in Galatians 3.28, for you are all one in Christ. Jews and Gentiles, one. Slaves and free, one. Male and female, one. And for our teaching today, Republican and Democrat, one. This was brand new. They, they were all one. One as in no distinction. One as in equal value. One as in equal dignity. This was culturally disruptive unity that was so different for the day. This was a new world order and it caught on and the fabric of the Roman Empire began to unravel and it changed the world. And listen, you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have been invited into this to participate in it. And more importantly, we are stewards of God's kingdom. Not, not just the pastoral staff or the leaders of the church. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are stewards. And, and any Christ follower, we, that's why it would be foolish for any of us, any church or any Christ follower, to allow ourselves to be divided over a party or over a platform. Because one day those political parties and those political, political platforms, easy for me to say, they won't exist. And Jesus will still be the king. See, no one gave the young movement any chance. And I know that there are many of us that are looking at this and we're going, man, does this really matter? No one gave them a chance for survival, let alone the thought that they would change the world. They thought, surely this movement is going to die out like their Nazarene leader when the leaders of the organization die. But 45 years after the Apostle Paul was martyred in Nero's Rome, Pliny the Younger, who was a governor of, of, a, of an area that is modern-day Turkey in the Roman Empire, he wrote a letter to the emperor in response to Rome's call to put down and stop the spread of Christianity all over the Roman Empire. The reason is, is because it was being blamed for the problems in the empire. And his letter, which survived antiquity, tells us what he found when he sent spies in to spy among the Christians and discover what was really going on with this Christian movement. And he wrote in his letter things like this. He said, they meet early on Sunday morning. Now, we, we think, well, okay, that's the early service at church. No, it, they, Sunday was not part of their weekend. Sunday was a part of the first day of their work week. And so they had to get up early to meet together. This shows how committed they were. This shows how moved and changed they really were. And they would gather together to celebrate and worship this, this dead rabbi who they saw as a God. And they would sing hymns. 
and they would worship God and declare the goodness of God and, and they would declare an oath to one another. And this is something that I really want you to see, the commitment they were not only making to each other, but it was about others outside of their walk of faith. That they were, see, they did not have the B-I-B-L-E to guide them yet. They had a few letters, but they didn't have the New Testament and its directives to help them understand how to walk this out. So they would make these oaths to one another and they would say things like this. We're not gonna commit fraud. We're, we're, we're not gonna charge people too much for anything. We're not gonna steal from people. They would say things like, you know what? We're not gonna commit adultery. We're, we're gonna not falsify trust. That is, we're not gonna follow through. We're gonna make sure that we follow through on all of our promises. They, it was all about what they were gonna do towards others because they understood what Jesus said, by this everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Not just people that are lovable. You see, this was so different from the pagan worship of their day because the pagan gods didn't really care about how you treated other people. All they were interested in was their sacrifice. But suddenly there is this new movement that has this ethical and moral component where people feel accountable to God about the way they treat each other. But it wasn't just people within the Christian movement itself, it was people in their community. Imagine what would happen today if our, in our community, if our city, we began to put the people that are beside us in front of us. In other words, we valued people that are around us that think differently than us, look differently than act differently than us. Can you imagine such a world? The early church could. That's why they made a decision to make an oath early in the morning. This was so countercultural to the Roman Empire. Because see, the Roman Empire was a culture that worshiped strength. They worshiped warfare, they worshiped conquest. To, to the leaders of the Roman Empire, this made absolutely no sense. In fact, the ruling class found this movement pathetic. But many began to find this upside down kingdom of Jesus appealing. They saw the actions of Christians. They didn't just hear the message and the words. They saw the actions where they actually saw Christians caring for sick people. Because you see, in a day where we have so much medicine, we don't recognize what it would be like to be around sick people like it was back then. But they would get around sick people and they would help them and they would, they would do whatever they could to get them well because they no longer feared death. They would rescue abandoned babies, babies that were taken outside of the city and left just to die. They would go rescue them even though they barely had enough money to feed their own family because they recognized that we're all made in the image of God. And the Romans would wonder, who are these people? There are people. Because I know what's easy for us to do is think, I'm just one person, I can't make a difference. Yes, you can. Yes, we can. They were people who changed their culture by placing the individuals as one and equal before God. The kingdom of God as described by Jesus appeared to the Roman Empire at first appalling and then appealing. And it became contagious. And against all odds, Christianity built on the foundation of loving others changed and reshaped the world. Listen, and hear me as I close today. This is why we dare not, as followers of Jesus Christ, be divided over party lines. 
we can vote differently, we can believe differently, we can think differently, but we cannot allow the enemy to destroy unity within the body of Jesus Christ. Listen, we can't be divided over party lines because one day those parties will be over. And if those who came before us who lived in a world that was more divisive than ours, listen, we think our world is divisive now and it is, but their world was so much more divisive. If they could find common ground at the foot of the cross, we have no excuse. We have no excuse. They're culturally disruptive unity. Man, I hope you catch that. Because listen, you can change your little world. You can change the people around you. Their culturally disruptive unity shocked the world and eventually their message changed the world. So my encouragement today is for us to commit, maybe recommit, to recognize some things we've been posting, some things we've been saying, some things we've been doing, behaviors that we've had, to change some of those things and learn how to be positive in the way that we express ourselves, to show the world that we really do believe the words of Jesus when he said, if you wanna be my disciple, come follow after me and everyone will know that you're my disciple if you love one another. Easy to hear, easy possibly to understand, much more difficult to do. But if we want to change and reshape America, I say, let it begin with me. Let it begin with me. 